Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 15, verses uh, 15 through 21. Uh, You can do that uh, online or on paper. It's also in that digital uh, order of worship you downloaded. Today we're looking at the second of four major prophets in the Old Testament. The first was Isaiah the poet. Today is Jeremiah the portent. Now, what's a portent? A portent is a sign or warning of something momentous or something calamitous. So, Tag, why did you not just call it a sign? Well, I think that signs, when I think of a sign, I think of a sign staying still, right? A sign is something that you uh, pound on a stake into the ground or you hang on a wall and it sits there and it stays very still. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet never stands still. If you read through the, the book of Jeremiah, he's always in action. He's always moving. And his actions act out the drama between God and Israel. And Jeremiah's actions point forward to the actions of Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet who is a portent. So the book of Jeremiah is, uh, is, is unique. Uh, it reads like a notebook of sermons and musings and ideas that are all put together, but not necessarily in a coherent order, and it lacks detailed historical context for the reader. So uh, Jeremiah is ministering roughly 60 years after Isaiah, after the Assyrians uh, rose and fell, and now the imminent threat to God's people are the Babylonians. And if you have ever felt alone, uh, alone in being right, and depressed because of being alone and being right, Jeremiah is your prophet. So here now, Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 15 through 21, which is God's word to his people, important to his salvation. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless." Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your prophet and grow us 30, 60, and 100 fold in Jesus' name. Amen. Repetition 
can wear you down. Uh, when I was playing music professionally, uh, daily scales, while good and necessary, uh, wore me down uh, with their repetition day after day. And I was always looking for a new way to try and make them fresh. Five days of repeated work wears you down. And you know, just when you're tempted to give up, there comes the weekend relief. Days, weeks, months now of quarantine wear you down. You long for human touch, human contact, human gathering. I mean, that's one reason why I'm glad that we get the relief of gathering in the park this afternoon to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, but even then, we must guard against a lifeless repetition of worship that wears us down. Because the repetition of anything can cause us to give up when we feel like it's mindless and our hearts aren't in it. If we don't keep the gospel message fresh, if we don't become astonished again and again by the eternal truth that God is eternally in love with his people, then Christians live their life as just one more social gathering. And like many repeated social gatherings, they become lifeless. If we miss the truth of God in our repetition, even of live streaming, we'll miss the power of God in salvation. And that is when we're most tempted to give up in life. Christians can experience that kind of lifelessness, and even more so those who aren't Christians, right? The repetition of life can tempt us to see every day as just a groundhog day, like that famous old movie. And when we can't see a way forward in life, we're tempted to give up and just mindlessly do whatever presents itself to us. But what if there is a fresh truth that we could see that would propel us forward. We must not give up on God's truth because we can see in it his salvation. Jeremiah, as a portent, lives out in action God's salvation. He doesn't merely point to it. He lives it as an example for us to see. And in doing that, he shows us the gospel in the Old Testament. He's living out a picture of salvation that is going to be fulfilled ultimately in Christ, the prophet par excellence. And that's where we're going with this. It's there if you have eyes to see it. So we're looking at this passage today so you can learn how to use the Old Testament in order to see the gospel by reading the Bible forward. And we'll see how Jeremiah is important when we see his context, his complaint, and God's answer. Context, complaint, and answer. All right? So we start with the context. I mean, the book of Jeremiah is 52 chapters long. And even though that is shorter than the book of Isaiah, uh, it is still not easy to summarize. Before we look at the details of Jeremiah's complaint that Jeremiah makes in chapter 15 that we read, we need to know something about the world Jeremiah was living in. And I think you can get the big context if you know just three scenes that are found in the book of Jeremiah. The first scene that I give you is a speech that Jeremiah makes in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. The people of Israel under King Josiah were experiencing spiritual and national renewal. But in that renewal, they focused on the wrong thing. They focused on themselves as the chosen people of God. They thought that as long as they had the temple, the sign of God's presence with them on earth, that the God who made them mighty would make them mightier still. 
And God tells Jeremiah in that moment to go stand at the entrance to the church, the gate of the house of the Lord, and tell the people to amend their ways and their deeds. He says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. You see, the people had convinced themselves that if they had a religious building and they had the right religious words, the right doctrines, that they also had God's favor and God's protection. God sent Jeremiah to preach against the popular notion of doctrine of Israel's religion at that time. So the second scene in Jeremiah is an object lesson that he uses in chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. There in chapter 13, God tells Jeremiah to go buy a linen loincloth. Now, okay, a loincloth could be a few different kinds of clothing, uh, a few different kinds of clothing, like, uh, like when we say shorts, uh, right? It could mean boxer shorts or it could mean khaki shorts. Uh, one is more inner, one is more outer, but both are meant to cover an area of sensitivity and strength. So God says, Jeremiah, My people are supposed to wrap around my sensitivity and my strength. They are supposed to be right next to me when I do my work. They're supposed to be like that strong pair of shorts. And then he tells Jeremiah to take a pair of shorts and bury them in a rock by the water's edge. Have you ever left a piece of clothing out at a campsite on the ground near the water, in the rain, in the mud? In the sun, what happens to it? God sends Jeremiah to pick up the loincloth after some days, and he says, Jeremiah, do those shorts still fit? Are they good to wear, or are they stretched out and ruined? You know the answer to that. And God says, this is how I'm going to spoil my people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and serve other gods. They will not listen. The third scene, to give us context, is in Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 20 through 27. In that scene, it's a colder time of year, and Israel's king is in his winter house with a fire in front of him. This is the king following Josiah, his son Jehoiakim. God had a copy of Jeremiah's words sent to the king. And as the scroll of the words was being unrolled, the king's secretary would read a few columns. And then the king would slice them off with a knife, take, what was, take that piece of parchment, and throw it into the fire. The secretary would unroll some more, read some more, while the people were standing around wide-eyed and watching. And then the king sliced off a few more, crumbled them up, and threw them into the fire until the entire scroll of Jeremiah's prophecy was burned up. And then the king commanded Jeremiah to be arrested, but the Lord hid him. Now those three scenes give us the world that Jeremiah lived in. The people around him thought they had a great nation. They combined their love of God with their love of themselves. They clung to their own heart and plugged their ears to Jeremiah's warnings. The king burned the words of God that came from the mouth of Jeremiah. So it is, is it any wonder that more than once Jeremiah says something like, 
I wish I'd never been born. In fact, he doesn't just say something like it. He says it. I wish I'd never been born. One place is in verse 10 of this very chapter 15 where, uh, where we're looking at today. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. Jeremiah is a portent. He's an embodied sign who lives out the anger, sadness, and rejection of God by his people. In his preaching, we see God's anger at sin. The anger comes out of a place of sadness because God loves his people so deeply. He has wonderful plans for them. He created them for something far better. Jeremiah lives in rejection, just like God was rejected by his people who thought they were clinging to him. Three stories that give you context for Jeremiah's dark poetry and despair of life. And that's what chapter 15, verses 10 through 21 is. This passage is the third in a cycle of six sort of confession complaints that Jeremiah makes. And based on Jeremiah's story, this complaint shouldn't be all that surprising. Let me ask, what might you be like if this was your ministry? Would you pray like Jeremiah does in verse 15? Oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. If God is angry with his people and he's going to punish them anyway, wouldn't you want him to like get it over with, especially on those who are persecuting you? But God is so patient and Jeremiah is, is, is in the midst of this complaint saying, God, don't let me die while you're being so patient. I'm being laughed at, rejected, and hunted down because of you, O Lord. <coughs> so look, Jeremiah is not a prophet so that he can win friends and influence people. Uh, that's the, that's the, the basic context. But now we have to move on to the... To, uh, the, the, uh, the, the contents of his complaint. I was looking for that word. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet because God chose him and because God is his delight. That's what verse 16 tells us. Your words were found. I mean, that could refer to the finding of the book of the law by the former King Josiah. Jeremiah began his ministry like many young Christians by eating up God's word, devouring it. You know, I've known more than one man who described himself as not really a reader. You know, the kind of guy who is not interested in uh, having a shelf full of books to occupy his time. But uh, two of the men that I'm thinking of who described themselves as not a reader told me the story of how when they first opened their heart and mind to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they suddenly had a hunger to read the Bible. One man said to me, uh, it's the only book that I can sit and read over and over again. And the other man said, when I first became a Christian, I stayed up late into the night, several nights in a row, until I had read the whole thing. You see, reading the Bible wasn't a duty to him. It was a delight. And that's how it was for Jeremiah. He took delight in God's word. God's word, which is carefully recorded and preserved through history. It's trustworthy, as it says in the New Testament, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for good work. And in verse 16, what is the reason given for Jeremiah's delight in God's word? 
because he was called by God's name, Yahweh, the God of hosts. Now, God of hosts should put a picture in our mind, a certain scene. And what is that host? It's the army of angels in heaven commanded by God himself. That's what a host is, right? It's a, it's a vast array of people or creatures gathered for a mission, usually a war. But this isn't Zeus or Jupiter or some generically powerful God. God has a name. It is the name he gives himself and tells to Moses, Yahweh. Four Hebrew letters that mean, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. This is God's name by which he signs the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh is the God of hosts who defeats Egypt, Pharaoh, and all the Egyptian gods in the Exodus event early in the Old Testament. Yahweh is the name under which God's people are gathered. That's the name that's placed on Jeremiah. And being chosen as one of God's people in that name gives Jeremiah great delight in God's word. Do you have that kind of delight being chosen in his name? It's not the other way around. Do you think that to become one of God's people, you need to read the Bible more? If you just check that off your list, you can say you're a Christian. That's actually not how it works. Duty does not make you a Christian any more than training with Jackie Joyner Kersey makes you an Olympian. You're not an Olympian until your country chooses you, puts their jersey on you, and you compete in the name of the USA. To be called by God's name is to have his jersey on you. And your life is lived by faith in his name. That calling and that relationship are what empower the delight for devouring God's word. But it wasn't all delight for Jeremiah. In fact, being called by God's name led him into a place of deep darkness. And that's what he tells us in verse 17. The second half of the verse tells us this. Jeremiah sat alone because God's hand was on him. God had filled him with indignation. Jeremiah was angry at sin in the same way that God was angry at his people's sin. That's why in the first half of verse 17, Jeremiah tells us he was alone. He refused to join the party of God's people. Why? Because it wasn't a party celebrating God. It was a mockery of God because it was celebrating self. And like most party poopers, Jeremiah was rejected by those throwing the party. Just like the word of God was being rejected, and therefore God himself was being rejected by his people. When you reject the prophet speaking in God's name, you are rejecting God. Where does that leave Jeremiah in verse 18? It leaves him in a place where he's questioning God. Rejection hurts. It leaves a wound. There may not be blood on the body, but there is a deep cut in the heart and soul. Right? The Marvel comic Wolverine is about a man whose body heals itself so fast that he cannot be stopped. Bullets rip through him and his flesh heals back. Knives cut him and his skin comes back together. But Jeremiah says in verse 18 that this cut to his soul is the opposite. This wound will never heal. The pain is perpetual. The wound cannot be cured. In fact, it refuses to be healed. Jeremiah asks a really dark question of God. Will you lie to me and be unfaithful to yourself? 
The word picture is like walking in the woods after a hard rain. You look down on the ground and you see a brook flowing, a spring of cool, clean water, and thinking that it's going to be there, you set up your camp by it. You go to bed at night and wake up in the morning only to find dry ground. The brook is gone. It really wasn't a spring of water at all. It was just runoff from the rain. Jeremiah says, God, I thought you were fresh water forever, but maybe you were just runoff from the rain, gone in a day. Who are you? God answers Jeremiah's complaint, and that answer contains some good news that we don't want to miss. Jeremiah faithfully records God's answer in verse 19, beginning with that famous word formula, thus says the Lord, which is a way of marking it off in the text and saying, take this seriously. Yahweh follows up with two ifs. First, if you return, and second, if you bring out. If you return, Jeremiah complains out loud. He knows that everything he says isn't golden. He knows that this dark question about God's faithfulness is out of bounds. It's that all too common uh, way of shifting the blame when you've done, somebody, uh, done something wrong. And so in this moment, if you return, Yahweh's forgiveness is on offer. It's like he's saying, wheel around 180 degrees, Jeremiah, and I will restore you. If you turn, I'll cause you to turn and you will stand before me. You'll be face to face with me. God lets Jeremiah make his complaint. I've met so many people who are afraid of the church, afraid of Christianity, afraid of God, because they feel like they've got so many complaints and questions that God probably doesn't want to hear from them. God lets Jeremiah make his complaint and he'll let you make your complaint as well. But then it's like God says to him, hey, why don't you turn around and look at me? Have you ever been in that place of complaining where you're so upset that you're not actually looking at anybody in the room? You're just walking around, shouting in the air, kind of going crazy, making your complaint, yelling. And then someone out of the kindness of their heart says to you, hey, turn around, look at me. That's the first if, if you turn. The second if is if you bring out. Now, I know our version uh, in the ESV says, if you utter, and that's an okay translation, but this actually is the only place that the ESV translates this form of the verb as utter. Uh, The old King James version is actually more literal here when it says, take forth the precious from the vile. And the New American Standard Bible did a good job with it when it says, if you extract the precious from the worthless. So first, Jeremiah turns around and then God says, hey, let's also have you sort out your words, the good stuff from the complaining, because that is also what I need you to do for my people. They've spent a lot of time saying worthless things like the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's time for someone to help them sort out their use of words. God is saying, Jeremiah, You're going to be my mouthpiece and help them sort it out. And in the second half of verse 19, we get more turning language. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Jeremiah has turned to God. 
Now the people will turn to Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is not going to turn to them. Why not? Because he can't turn away from God. Are the people going to turn to Jeremiah in repentance? Not at this point. Instead, they're going to set their sights on him to fight him. When they hear Jeremiah preach God's word, they're going to want to take him out. But God in verse 20 says that he's made him a wall of reinforced bronze. They will fight against him. And if you read the rest of Jeremiah, you recognize they do. Oh, they do. But they will not prevail over him. Jeremiah has to sort out the precious from the worthless. And so do we. It's so hard. But this week, uh, a certain politician made a speech and quoted scripture in the speech. And while he was trying to do something good, he went from uttering something precious to uttering something worthless because he took out the name Jesus and substituted the words old glory for the word Jesus. And that was wrong. In fact, uh, that is the exact mistake that Israel was making in this moment, in this prophet, in this book. We must never substitute our nation for our Savior. Now, look, I believe the best about this politician. I want to believe even more of the best about him. But going forward, I hope he would retract those remarks and recognize his error, especially because of his claim to be one of God's people. And the truth is, In this economy, there is room for repentance. We must bring out what is precious from what is worthless. Now, our country is not worthless, uh, not by a long shot. But if we make the error of wrapping our flag around our Savior, we will lose our country the same way the Israelites did. God used pagan nations to discipline His people. He allowed them to burn down his own temple and take his people into exile. I'm convinced that this politician doesn't want that for this nation. I'm sure of it. So I'm pointing out this public error and calling on all of us to examine our own hearts. That was Jeremiah's job. It's my job as well. And I promise you, it's not fun. But I have to tell you, That's not the end of the story. Jeremiah lived out the rejection. He was a portent, but he also lived out the salvation of God. As the prophet was rejected, so also were God's people rejected in that time. As the prophet was saved, so also would God's people be saved. Look at the second half of verse 20. I am with you to save you and deliver you. Thus saith the Lord. There's that word formula again. Take this seriously. God will save and deliver the prophet from the people as a sign that ultimately God will save and deliver his people from their exile. Jeremiah, you're a wall. The people are pounding against you. But if you think that you're beyond hope, it's not so. And the hope comes in verse 21. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked. This is the second time in two sentences that the word deliver comes up. The noun form of that Hebrew root means salvation, right? Twice now God is saying salvation is coming, Jeremiah. How is it coming? The final phrase of verse 21 gives us the word, 
redeem. Redeem, to buy back. In other words, God is going to buy his people back. How? At the cost of his own son. Jeremiah was the prophet who was a portent. Jesus is the ultimate prophet and portent. Jeremiah was a living sign, speaking God's word, pointing forward to God's judgment and salvation. Jesus is the word made flesh. In his flesh, he took on God's judgment in order that you could receive God's salvation. Jesus does everything Jeremiah does, only greater. In verse 16, God's word is in Jeremiah and God's name is on Jeremiah. Jesus is God's word. And the name of Jesus is the name of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. Jesus was filled with indignation at sin. He never condoned it. He never participated in it. He never had to turn back to God because he never turned away from God in the first place. But on the cross, God the Father turned away from the Son. Jesus was rejected by his own people. But more than that, Jesus was rejected by the Father in our place so that when we turn to him, we will receive God's eternal welcome. God did not fail his own people. He was not a deceitful spring. In fact, it was Jesus himself said that he is the one who gives the water of life and that anyone who thirsts can come to him and drink the water that will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. It'll never dry up. Jesus received the eternal wrath of God the ultimate incurable wound. But because he is God, he is the fortified wall that sin cannot break. God's vengeance was finished on the cross. Jesus gives us a context for our suffering. His resurrection helps us sort out what is precious from what is worthless in our words. And he, and he alone, is the answer that we have looked for. And he gives us the ultimate salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, who spoke your word through the living sign of the prophet Jeremiah and pointed us to Jesus, grant us salvation in the eternal Son who is strong to save. Turn us again to him that we may receive your eternal welcome and worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.